Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. We invite you to follow along in your Bibles or look to the screens. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in you for heaven, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The word of the Lord. So we're on a, a learning journey as a community, living into the question, if the resurrection actually happened, then how does that affect the way in which we live our lives right now here on earth? So if we proclaim that Jesus walked out of the grave and into the physical world, does that have anything to say about how we go about living our lives right now, how we interact with one another, how we see reality, where we choose to root ourselves in hope? And Peter is writing this letter, his beginning letter, he's writing this about two decades after Jesus had risen from the dead. So Peter, a follower of Jesus, is still talking about the resurrection. It's still somewhat fresh in the air. And he's talking about the, re the resurrection and all the implications behind the resurrection. If you look at verse 3, the opening of this letter, he says, Praise be to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He refers to this hope that the resurrection actually brings into our lives, and he calls it a living hope. And I'm, I'm fascinated by this term, living hope. What is this living hope that Peter refers to? And does this living hope have anything to say about suffering, pain, grief, loss, or when we find ourselves swimming in the deep end of hopelessness? Or are we as followers of Jesus Christ, when we choose to say yes to Jesus, are we supposed to just kind of wait it out until the end when we actually get to go to heaven someday? And that, that's what we're waiting for? We're just anticipating that time in the future? Or does the resurrection have something to say about then and now? And I think one of the big questions that is kind of underneath it all for me as I explored this in my own journey is what is it in life that is pulling me forward? What's pulling you forward? Is there some kind of truth, some kind of hope, something in the future that you feel is pulling you through life so that you're not finding yourself always slipping back into old patterns or slipping into hopelessness, but what is it that's pulling you forward? Peter calls it living hope, as if something about this living hope is pulling him into a deeper reality of who he is and who he is becoming. 
that somehow this living hope is not just some kind of nebulous thing, but it actually gets into the cellular level of the body, into our bones, into our very being as human beings. I've been a minister for 35 years now. When I, when I say that, I'm a little bit horrified. Like 35 years, you're getting old, man. And I've been at this, and, and I've been privileged to walk alongside people for the last 35 years in the ministry of presence. Just being with people along the way in their absolute best moments, in their worst moments. And as a minister, what you get to do is you, sometimes you get a front row seat into the vast nature of human emotions. I remember one week I had a, a wedding on a Friday, and then on a Saturday I did a funeral, and then on Sunday morning you get up and you have to preach two sermons in which you have to encourage people and inspire people. It's like this whole slew of emotions. So in just one weekend, you have a, a wedding celebration on a Friday in which I like my wife and I love to get our dance on at weddings. Like we just sweat when we dance. So all of, the, all of the joy and the celebration and the love in the air and, the, and just the, the elation of these two lives coming together and celebrating that emotion and then followed up the next morning by going to a funeral and sitting in the grief and the hopelessness and the loss that this family was experiencing and being present in that. And then on Sunday morning, having you just give out yourself and just thinking about the vast nature of all those human emotions experienced in one weekend, I've listened to story after story after story of people who have experienced great loss and grief. Watching people who are dealing with the grief of losing a child, uh, losing a marriage, losing a spouse, all the things that, that all of us in this room have experienced to different degrees. And we all suffer. And if you haven't suffered yet, it just simply means that you haven't lived long enough yet because you will. That's, that's the ticket we get in living this human experience. That's the world in which we live in. And I was thinking about people in my life who have held on to hope really well through grief. And there's this one woman in particular who, uh, her name is Carrie. And Carrie is in her 70s now. And I just, I look at her life and I think, how did you get to where you are? She's got all this humility and poise and she's a very calm presence and seems to be deeply rooted in something very real. You know people like this. And when I ask her, how did you get there? She would then say, are you sure you want to know? Because it's a hard path to become the kinds of people that actually reflect the, the nature of Jesus in the world. And I was reflecting back on a moment in Carrie's life that I had a, a vivid memory of. And I remember um, Carrie's son, Kevin, when he was young, he had to have a kidney transplant. And so he had a kidney transplant. And throughout the first several years of life, he just fought, fought, fought for life. And you didn't know if he was going to make it through life. And then as he was later in his teen years, he got a second kidney transplant that actually came from Carrie. And that transplant took a while to take. And then it began to settle in his body. And it looked like he was doing really well. And I remember a moment when Kevin just turned sideways and it looked like, oh, he's not going to make it. The kidney failure is settling in. And I remember Carrie just being, just being immersed in grief, feeling like I'm going to lose my son. And can I handle this? Can I, can I bear the grief and the weight of this? And I remember our church met on Sunday nights because we, uh, we lived in Manhattan Beach, California, and we figured everybody surfs in the morning. Why would you have a church service in the morning? We'll just do it at night, and then all the surfers can come in. 
And we had this church service on Sunday night, and I remember preaching and praying with our community for Carrie and for Kevin, and myself and some of our worship team members decided, you know what we're going to do tonight? We're going to go over to the hospital, and we're going to sit with Carrie and her husband Jeff and with Kevin, and we're going to sing and we're going to pray and we're going to bring what we're experiencing here into the hospital. And I had left right after the service and went straight to the hospital. The worship team was um, putting stuff away and they were going to come a little bit later. And as I got to the hospital and got up to that floor where she was, I saw Carrie across the hall and her eyes just locked. And as I looked at her, I could just see the grief on her body. You know what I'm talking about? Like when some people have immense grief and they're just, they're kind of immersed in it. And our, our eyes locked and I, as I walked towards Carrie, I had really nothing to say other than to just be present. And I remember grabbing and holding her in that moment, and her body went limp. It was like the grief was so heavy that everything inside of Carrie went limp, and she couldn't even hold herself up any longer. And so because she went limp, I just slowly went to the ground, and we sat on the hospital floor, and she wailed and she wept. And I sat there and was simply present in that moment because some moments are so holy and so sacred that all you can do is make space for the grief. So we had to create space for all this grief to kind of swirl around, trusting that somehow God was even in this moment. And I couldn't even utter a word. All I could do was sit and hold her. And then our worship team showed up and they brought in guitars and went into Kevin's room, and still there was tears and grief. It was like we had nothing to say, and so we moved into a time of praise, and all we could do was sing. And I remember watching Carrie and her husband, Jeff. They, they couldn't sing because they just didn't have anything left inside of them. And I watched the other teams sing praises over Kevin and over Carrie and over Jeff and the room was just filled with praise and it was like the songs began to fill the hallways of the hospital and I thought oh my gosh what is happening right now something so sacred and so beautiful is happening that these people can't sing but these people can and if we're honest friends sometimes we can't sing sometimes we can't we don't we don't have the strength to utter the words and so we rely on other people to sing on our behalf or to pray on our behalf because we don't have the words and that hopelessness that had settled into Carrie and into Jeff was such a powerful emotion. And I think we can all agree that when we as human beings lose hope, life becomes unbearable. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Are you with me? It becomes unbearable. And so they couldn't sing, but we could. And so we did. And I reflected back on my own life, and I think there's been times in my own journey where I was just swirling around in anger or disappointment or grief because life rarely works out the way you think it's going to work out. And so you get into this swirl, and I remember so often other people moving into the grief with me and praying around me, singing for me, and speaking words of life and hope over me because in those moments I was just swirling around in hopelessness. There was a man in my life, his name is Wayne Carlson, and Wayne is a retired pastor, a covenant pastor. And I always referred to Wayne as my pastor. He was like, I'm a pastor, I need a pastor too. I need somebody that I can go to and talk to. And Wayne became my pastor. 
And I remember uh, through a season of life where I was fighting depression and hopelessness, and I just kind of had lost sight. I'm like, I don't, I don't know if this is going to get better. I don't know if this circumstance in my life is actually going to get better. And I remember Wayne sitting across the table from me saying, John, we're going to get through this together. And I can tell you this, you can trust God. Now, sometimes when people say that to me, I'm like, I want to hear it from you. But from Wayne, because I knew what he had gone through and I knew what he had experienced in life, he had experienced tragic loss, a lot of pain, and, and a lot of disappointment. And I've watched Wayne go through life and handle those things. And sometimes he would get immersed in it. But there's many times when Wayne would come out even stronger and more beautiful, a sense of a deeper hope that was rooted in something greater than himself. And I thought in that moment, I actually believe you. And I needed to hear that from my pastor that he trusted God even when I didn't in that moment. Wayne had this kind of what I would call a buoyant joy. And you think about joy, when you think about this passage here where Peter is talking about rejoicing and glorious joy, and you think, what kind of joy is that? Because that's not just happy feelings. That's some kind of a, of a buoyant joy. And I remember as a kid when I used to do this thing where I would take a rubber ball in the pool and I would try to take it down to the bottom of the deep end and see if I could keep it there. And as you know, that's like impossible. But you do it as a kid. You're like, this is a game. I just want to play this game. And I would take the ball and I would just shove it down to the bottom and I would try like standing on it. But eventually I ran out of breath and then the ball would always come to the surface. And I thought that thing is so buoyant. And I thought about joy, that there's a kind of joy that is so buoyant that even when life tries to take it down to the deep end of the pool, it still just pops up. It's always on the top of the surface because it's buoyant. It's rooted in something greater than itself that can't keep it down, that can't take it down and immerse it to the bottom of the pool because it always wants to pop up. And Wayne had this buoyancy about him, this buoyant joy. And, and Carrie had this buoyant joy where I see so much grief and disappointment in their lives, and yet there's always something that kind of keeps them rooted in what is most real. And I thought to myself, these people, these people believe that the empty tomb has something to say about life right now. And not just someday out there, but it actually is infusing them with some kind of a, a deeper hope, this buoyant joy. And I thought about the words of Peter this week where he says in verse 6, In all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. You're like, really, does that have to be there? And then he says in verse 8, But you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And what I love about what Peter does and what I love about what I see in Wayne and Carrie is there's no denial of grief. There's not like, yeah, it just doesn't exist or just don't think about it. They don't deny it. They don't run away from it. They like make space for it in their lives. That this inexpressible, buoyant joy and all of this grief somehow live in the same vessel and swirl around. It's like they have learned how to make space for the immensity of all of it. It was as if something was pulling them forward and not down. Something was pulling them into the future. The empty tomb unlocked some kind of a buoyant hope that we get to access as human beings. And then Peter talks about this interesting metaphor in his letter, and he talks about some kind of an inheritance that we get to have as Jesus followers. And he says in verse 4, 
And this inheritance that he talks about can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What is Peter referring to here? He's referring to the time when Jesus will return as the rightful king over the entire world, and he will bring justice and renew all things. Peter is reminding us of something important, that the empty tomb actually marked in history. There's an inheritance in heaven waiting for you right now. And the reality is, is that we don't have to wait to get it someday. We can actually access it right now and draw from it. That's the beauty of what he's saying here. Peter is getting crushed left and right. Followers of Jesus, Jesus are experiencing radical um, oppression. They're getting crushed and they're expressing all the sorrow and the failure. They even say, I don't know if I can even make it another day. I'm not sure I can get through another day. And yet somehow they learned how to draw from this inheritance. He uses this banking metaphor. It's like every time you go to the ATM machine and you stick your card in, imagine if money always came out. I used to work in a city called Bel Air, California, at Bel Air Presbyterian Church as a youth pastor. And I remember kids coming from really wealthy families saying, I don't know what the big deal is. You just go stick your card in the, in the, mail, in the ATM and money comes out. I'm like, that's not really how it works. But thinking, about, thinking of that implication of just every time I go, I can withdraw, I can pull something, that there's always something there. And I remember a vivid moment that I had in my own family. Some of you know that Shannon, over 15 years ago, was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. She had a, a lump in her throat. And we noticed that when she would sing, the lump would, would stick out a little bit more. And then eventually it got so bad that it would start to gag her to where she had a hard time singing. And so uh, we went and she had surgery and the lump was removed and they did testing on the lump. And sure enough, it was cancer. And I remember that moment sitting there when the doctor says, your wife has cancer. And I thought, uh, what? Like, what do I do with that? She's young. My kids were like three and six at the time. Um, I was planting a church. I was in year three of planting a church in which my overseer said, I don't think the church plant's going to make it. I'm like, of course not. The church plant's going to fail. My wife has cancer. Like, this is how it happens. Everything happens at once. And so I remember stepping into that and watching my wife deal with the loss and fighting cancer and going through chemotherapy. And after she had had the surgery, she couldn't sing. My wife has been singing since she was a kid. She was a part of Salty, the singing songbook. If you guys remember, like if you've been around Christianity for a long time, she was on those albums. She sang, I love you, Lord, with Salty, the singing songbook. That's like my wife. Like, That's pretty cool. And she was, she's always been a singer. That's how she connects to God. She sings. And I remember her sitting there in church services while we're all singing and she couldn't sing and how much grief that she was dealing with. And I remember a night, it was so vivid for me, we were sitting in the house and we were just trying to process all of this loss and she started to whisper a song and all she could do was whisper. And she couldn't really sing it, but she could whisper it. And this is the song she sang. I'll never forget this. This is a song called, Yet I Will Praise You. 
Even when my heart is torn, I will praise you, Lord. Even when I feel deserted, I will praise you, Lord. Even in my darkest valley, I will praise you, Lord. And when my world is shattered and it seems all hope is gone, yet I will praise you. She was drawing from something in that moment. There's an inheritance that she was pulling from, and that's all she could do in that moment. She could only whisper that song. But that stood out to me as like, that, that's real. There's something there that is so real that she's pulling from. She's like going way down to the bottom of the pool in the deep end and pulling something that's so deep and so profound that she's drawing from her roots. And she just could whisper the song. Shannon and I are not superhuman in any way. There are times when we swim in hopelessness. There are moments when we do not draw from our inheritance. This letter actually has come at a really good time in my life right now. For both me and for my wife to be reminded of where we get our hope from. Where are we drawing from? What's pulling us forward? Is it living hope or is it, I need my circumstances and change in order for me to feel hope again? Or is there something deeper that we can draw from? And as I look at my own life and I think about my different approaches to hopelessness, because like we said, when we as human beings begin to feel hopeless, life becomes unbearable. And when we get there, what I've noticed in my own life, and maybe you can resonate with this, is I see one of three responses that typically I'll go through. One is that when things get really difficult or I start to feel hopeless, I get really angry, bitter, resentful, disappointed, and I lose the narrative and I lose the plot real quickly. And I start doing this thing called the blame game. Maybe some of you have participated in this before, where you start to blame other people for the stuff going on in your own life. And we love to blame shift, don't we? It's not, it's not me, it's them, it's that person, it's this situation. And we, we get into this blame situation and sometimes we get really harsh and full of judgment. And I've seen it in my own life. Or, this is even scarier, we can move into what is called indifference. And this is where we will numb out. We'll just kind of numb because I don't want to feel the feelings anymore. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I'm so tired of these feelings. I just don't want to feel these feelings. And so we want to numb and we can use substances to numb ourselves. We can find ourselves drinking just a little bit more so that we don't have to feel these feelings because I don't want to feel anymore because I know that somehow I'm getting myself rooted in a hopelessness. And man, let's be honest, friends. The inertia of hopelessness is immense. It can pull, pull us down. And yet what we're reminded of in the text is there's some kind of hope some kind of a living hope that's actually pulling us forward. And we need to learn how to surrender to that pull or develop practices that, that actually help us step into the pull. And then there are those moments when, yes, I do draw from my inheritance. I do draw from it. And I start to realize that my deepest roots are actually in something more profound and deeper than myself. And for my wife, it's singing. And for me, where I draw my deep roots from are what is called quiet contemplation. And if I practice quiet contemplation 
it actually roots me in something deeper. I'm going to invite us into a practice together. You were given a card on your way in, and on the front of the card, it just says, breathe. And you'll notice on the top left-hand corner, it has four Hebrew letters, Y-H-V-H. This is how God chose to reveal God's name to Moses in the book of Exodus. So when, when Moses is having this encounter with this God, Moses asks, so what's your name? Like, what do I call you? How do I describe you to people? And then God says, my name is yod Hey vad Hey." Four letters, no vowels, because the ancient Hebrew text didn't have vowels. So Y-H-V-H, can anybody pronunciate that without vowels? Go. How do you say it? Y-H-V-H, it's impossible, right? And that's the point. I think it's the point. God reveals God's name to Moses. It says, what's your name? Oh, you can't pronounce it. Okay, good. Good, good, good plan. I'll go back and tell everybody what your name is. And I says, well, I don't know what his name is. I can't even pronounce it. But I thought about it. Y-H-V-H, it actually, if you tried to like say it, it just sounds like breath. You could just kind of go, <sighs> that's it. Breath. And I thought, man, I can breathe. As a human being, it's the one thing we can all do. So it must mean that everyone can say the name of God and that every breath you take is actually declaring God's name. So I was introduced to this practice a long time ago when I started to practice the, the posture of contemplation and sitting in silence for entire long periods of time just listening to the still small voice of God. And someone had taught me this prayer called the Yahweh prayer. And what the Yahweh prayer is, is you simply sit and you breathe in Yah and you hold it and then you breathe out Way. Babies can do this prayer. Yah Way. Now, when I do this, when I actually have the discipline to do this, and it takes a lot of practice, things begin to open up inside of my soul. And I began to root myself in this inheritance, something more real than my circumstances. Notice that there's no words. Have you ever noticed how when we pray, sometimes our prayers are so full of words that many times afterwards, I feel like the Holy Spirit goes, well, this is what she really meant. I know she's been talking a lot. He's been having a lot to say. This is what they really meant. And, but when we sit and we just breathe, I mean, how often do we sit and just breathe? Do we create space for the immensity of life? So what I want to do this morning is I want to sit for two minutes. And I'm going to invite you into this practice just to breathe in, yah, and breathe out, way. So it goes like this. Just saying the name of God. And as you do that, I want you to ask yourselves, where have I lost hope? And what, what needs to be reignited in my soul? What living hope is there in my soul? Can we, 
Can we take the risk and see if the Holy Spirit might actually do something this morning in us? So I'm going to time this for two minutes. Sit and breathe. So get comfortable for a moment. If you have to stand or you want to go to the back of the room or come to the front or whatever it is that's the most comfortable space for you to just sit and listen. And then as you're listening, see what God's spirit might say to you. Reignite hope in my soul. All right, here we go. Ready? Go. Holy Spirit, speak. We are listening. For some of you, it may have come up quickly. For others, you may have heard nothing. It's all okay. This is a practice and something that you can do when you're walking out of this place today. And my invitation to you as you sit and as you listen or you walk or you run or whatever it is that works for you, that you would begin asking the Holy Spirit, where have I lost hope? And I need, I need you to reignite a living hope in my soul because I'm tired and I can't do it anymore. Where does the Holy Spirit need to reignite living hope in your soul? Jesus, our great healer, would you be so kind and so gracious to continue doing what you started when we woke up this morning? Not because it started here, because it started with you 
declaring that we get another day. And would you meet us wherever we're at in our hopelessness, in our hope, in our disbelief, in our belief, in our confidence, in our lack of confidence, whatever it is, meet us there. Reveal yourself to us in that space. And we hold on to this declaration that the empty tomb actually has something to say about hopelessness right now. So we want to live into that as a people. Help us reflect on that. Live into that space in the name of Jesus. Jesus, keep doing what you're doing. We honor you. Thank you. We believe that the God we serve is a God who wants to heal us emotionally, physically, spiritually. And we want to be a people that offer prayer. So Susan Dupron and Crystal will be up front afterwards if you'd like to come forward to receive prayer wherever you're at. You will be met with love and acceptance and grace and the goodness of God. So receive the benediction, my friends. Now, may the Lord God bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face, all of it, to shine upon you and be gracious unto you, even in your pain and your hopelessness, in your joy and in your grief. And may he lift up his countenance, whatever that means, I don't fully understand. But may he lift it up that it would swirl all around you and fill every fiber of your being, even at your cellular level, that you would feel it buzzing and humming through your very being this week. And may his deep shalom hold you, guard you, pull you forward. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, grace and peace be with you. Go in peace.